We got school vouchers on our brains today. Lots of people are interested in them. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa's up first. Lisa, we talked yesterday about the public school opposition to school vouchers, but it looks like a lot of people in Ohio like them. How many applications has the state received for help with tuition to private schools now that the voucher program has been expanded? To date, the state has received 66,363 school voucher applications, and this is for the EdChoice expansion scholarships. These are the new ones that expanded the eligibility. 27,553 of those have been approved through last Friday. The uh, Ohio Department of Education is receiving about 900 to 1,000 new applications a day. The deadline to sign up for vouchers is October 15th. So last year, only 24,200 30 applications were approved. But now, like I said, the expansion of eligibility basically took from the 250% federal federal poverty level, which is about $69,000 a year for a family of four, increased that to 450%. That's $135,000 a year for a family of four. But voucher amounts do vary according to the income. So if you're at the top end of the income, then you're only going to get about 10% of the voucher value. So K through eight, the, the expansion has increased it from $5,500 per student to $6,165. In grades 9 through 12, it went from $7,500 per student to $8,400 per student. But there are other voucher programs. There are four others, and they're also getting um, you know, applications, although their application levels have stayed about the same. What's interesting about this is I suspect that many of the people who apply for vouchers probably are voters that, that vote every time. Their, their voting records are solid. And the legislators know that, 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 yes, this damages public schools. It has all sorts of ugly ramifications. But the people who cast votes probably have a higher percentage of people in um, students in private school. And they want it. Clearly, they want it. People are coming out of the woodwork to apply. And the deadline's not even here yet, right? More people are still applying. Right. Through October 15th. And if you take the expansion program and the four existing voucher programs, which includes the Cleveland Scholarship Program, the total number of applications to date for all vouchers is 127,674. And that compares to only about 83,000 last year. So with, you know, about five weeks left to go, it looks like we'll see a lot more. But Ohio Education Association President Scott DeMauro says, don't be surprised if mid and upper income families already enrolled in private school will take this new free money from the state. And he warns that it will cost Ohio more than they thought for this uh, voucher expansion. Well, of course they will. It's free Mm -hmm. money. If they're already spending the money on tuition and the state says we'll subsidize part of that, why wouldn't they grab a piece of it? Look, for people that want to support public schools, they're going to have to build a voting block to fight back. Because right now, the people making the decisions obviously are satisfying their constituents with this. I'm not sure how else to deal with it. The the public schools are being damaged. The money's coming out of them. Mm -hmm. So anybody who believes in public schools knows this is a dangerous move, but how do you stop it? There's so many people that favor it. And like I said, I think they probably vote. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Most people in Ohio know about the HB6 bribery scandal. We've certainly talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast, but soon the rest of the nation will be aware. Laura, who's about to bring the story to the masses? This will be HBO. So the former U.S. attorney who brought the racketeering charges against householder, as well as a GOP operative named Tyler Furman, who testified and blew the whistle on the scheme. They've both told uh, Jake Zuckerman that they've been interviewed by HBO from the by for the project. Now, HBO isn't confirming anything. We don't have details. But Furman's fiance shared photos of Furman on camera from what she said was the set of the documentary sh- shoot. He shared the post and wrote, what a ride. He can't say much, but he confirmed that, that documentary director Alex Gibney is seen in the photos. And David DeVillers, who's the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, who became the public face of the investigation, he said he was interviewed about two months ago. I would love to see a full-scale movie on this. This thing had all of the great drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back to the, the signature gatherers getting accosted and bullied by the people that were funded by the HB6 yeah, The Red scheme, China ads? The red, right, the Red China ads, all that stuff, man. You could really make a great job. And the people that put the big short together could do something pretty special with this. You know, you had the big power-broking Larry Householder thinking he could do whatever he wants and the threats to other legislators if they didn't get in line. This thing's loaded with high drama. Of course, it's Ohio's shame. This is not going to be good for Ohio's image. One of the biggest bribery scandals in the history of the country, and certainly in Ohio, going out to everybody, they're going to look at Ohio and go, man, what a messed up state you are. Yeah, I don't think it's good for ours. But then again, I feel like you don't necessarily judge the entirety when you watch these specific documentaries, right? Like you didn't watch Tiger King or like, I'm never going to that state. I don't even remember if it's Missouri or whatever, but I I do think that this is ripe for drama. Think about all the, the text messages they have, all the recordings they have from the FBI agents. Like this, this will be, I mean, it's, you don't have to rely on interviews. There's a lot of really good evidence here that they can show. But how do you complete the story without the indictments of Chuck Jones and Randazzo, you know, who were involved, you know, Randazzo. Isn't that the outrage factor, though? Like, isn't that the the wording that goes on the end of the screen where it's like, Sam Randazzo has yet to be indicted and everyone's like, no, there's a to be continued part of the show. Well, yeah, you could point out he that the, 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 there is evidence he took all millions of bribes and that Chuck Jones provided millions of bribes and that uh, they are walking free and only the legislators have gone to prison. I wish Dave DeVillers was still the U.S. attorney. He actually did something. The people down in the Southern District, it is inexcusable how much inaction is coming from there, given the evidence that has mounded up. I just I wonder what's going on. Did- is it just because the pow- the rich don't get nailed that the the U.S. attorney in the Southern District is afraid of these guys because they have money and high-priced lawyers? It's not an interim, right? It's, it's no, a- he's no, he's there. It's just, come on, where are you? It's how many years later and the evidence is so strong. I wonder if it's just cowardice. They're afraid of the high-priced lawyers. Look, the, the, the lawyers went into court how many months ago and said, we believe indictments are imminent. And nothing. I mean, these guys are walking around free and, and they Sam Randazzo asked for his money back, right? Yeah. yeah it's a, I mean, you're right. It would make a great kicker. The, the incredible injustice that's being served up by the U.S. Attorney's Office, where only the elected officials go, the providers of the money walk free.
You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council blew it when they rejected Mayor Justin Bibb's request that they set aside less than a million dollars for participatory budgeting to get more people involved in government. Now, those who supported participatory budgeting have a proposal on the ballot to cut out millions from the city budget. Courtney, is there any chance that the city council, which hates this idea, will compromise with this progressive movement to get more people involved? Well, there was an attempt this week, but that crumbled completely yesterday. I don't know if it really had legs from the outset, but Councilwoman Rebecca Marr, who's who's long been a fan of participatory budgeting and still likes the idea, she tried to carve out this last minute deal that would have reduced the amount set aside in the city's budget from the currently roughly $14 million that's in the charter amendment that's going ahead to the ballot this fall. She tried to reach a compromise and and get that amount dropped down because council and opponents of participatory budgeting say that that high amount's just going to be a big problem and a big budget gap for the city's budget, which is already slim. So she tried to lessen that amount. That fell through. Council wasn't on board with it. I think most on council are just fundamentally opposed to the principle of this, which is taking some of their spending authority, which is their main job, right, out of their hands and giving it directly to the people. So fundamentally, council just doesn't want to move here. But at the same time, as this deal collapsed, we're starting to see a continued uptick in major labor unions in Cleveland coming out against this. And the labor union piece of this is kind of what Council President Blaine Griffin, that's his big political strategy to hopefully try and defeat this at the ballot box in his mind. He's leaning on labor unions to tell Cleveland voters, oh, this is not good for police, fire, et cetera, and you should vote this down. So we're starting to see their strategy now that no compromises is no longer on the table. Yeah, but these are the same guys that use the strategy against Justin Bibb, and they failed miserably. I mean, Blaine Griffin endorsed Kevin Kelly. The labor unions endorsed Kevin Kelly. The GCP folks endorsed Kevin Kelly. They ran ugly ads against Justin Bibb, and the electorate of Cleveland said, no, we're going a different way. They did the same thing on the move to to put civilian control over the police. I'm shocked that council is so blind here. I mean, they could have gotten away with, what was it, a half million dollars, right? It's a paltry, tiny percentage of the budget with the idea of let's get more people engaged in government. We want more civic awareness. Voter turnout is terrible in Cleveland. And they blew it because now the people go to the ballot with a gigantic percentage. Here they had another chance to reduce the damage. And instead, they're going to fight it. Are they not paying attention? There's an engaged electorate in Cleveland. They seem like they're in control. They're going to end up having a loss of 10% of their budget or whatever the percentage is. This is crazy. I don't understand the lack of compromise. But it seems to me, oh, I'm sorry. It seems to me, though, that participatory budgeting could be a lot like herding cats because you're going to have people coming in with all kinds of different agendas. I don't know. I don't Yeah, I think it would be difficult. Yes, it could be. But but why not try it with a small amount of money just to see if you can get engaged? These mm-hmm. people got rebuffed and it's like, OK, we'll go to the ballot that look that the, the results of the ramifications of this are pretty big if this thing passes. Recent history kind of says it will. They, the labor unions don't have any sway. They got 
crushed at the ballot box. They, I mean, they were gross in their support of Kevin Kelly. They lost big time. What does it mean that the labor unions, the tired old labor unions are rallying their flag again? I, I just it's it seems so, so short sighted to me that they didn't go with Rebecca Marr and the compromise. Let's figure something out. Let's get this off the ballot so the damage isn't bigger. What, what's wild to me here is that, you know, the, 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 this idea when it was a pilot back then had support from four council members, including Rebecca Moore, kind of the, in some ways, the, the progressive wing of council. And the, that support has fallen. You know, I think that's interesting here. They like the idea of it. They wanted to implement this in Cleveland, but looking at the text and the specific proposals of the charter amendment, they're raising all kinds of concerns. And these are coming from council members who supported this idea back then. You know, everyone at City Hall, this is all the buzz. Everybody's kind of focused on this now. And and City Hall says this has huge, huge budget ramifications. But I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I don't. I don't know how you message against the idea of giving residents a say right. in their budget. That yeah, I, I mean, it seems like, right, it's a, it's going to be kind of a no-brainer. People go to the polls. Why wouldn't you want people involved in the in the spending of money? Look, they, they, they just, I don't get it. They're, they're missing the big picture. This, look, this has bad ramifications, clearly. They could fix this by working with the people that proposed it instead of saying, harumph, harumph, how dare you, how to, dare, dare you tell us, how to do our jobs. It's just a, it's one of those that you look at, it's a train wreck and you go, those two trains are going to crash. They could stop those. And the people driving the trains just keep going, speeding up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Dominion East Ohio is the big supplier of natural gas in Northeast Ohio. It, the pipelines, not necessarily the gas itself. Now, East Ohio gas has been sold or has proposed to be sold. It wouldn't close until next year. Lisa, we had a great story today that explains what this means for customers. What does it mean? So East Ohio Gas Company, which was bought by Dominion back in 2000, is being sold to Canada-based Enbridge Natural Gas Company for $14 billion. This will affect about 1.2 million Dominion customers, most of them in Cuyahoga, Geauga, Lake, Summit, and Portage counties. The sale must be approved by several groups, the Federal Trade Commission, the Committee on Foreign Investments, because it's a Canada company, and also the FCC. So like you said, the sale will probably take about a year. It's going to happen sometime in 2024. There will be no changes to customers, rates, or anything until then, and they're also not expecting any layoffs, at least in this point. Michelle Herodence with Enbridge says they want a smooth, painless transition. They're not going to raise rates. They are supporting ongoing infrastructure upgrades that Dominion is doing, and they say actually that infrastructure program is one of the reasons they wanted to buy Dominion or East Ohio Gas, but Rates may change before the sale closes because the Public Utilities Commission ordered Dominion to file its rate change case by October 31st, and they haven't had a full rate review in over 10 years, and this rate review is a nine-month process, so we may see rates rise before the sale completes. I, what I like to see in the story is their dedication to continuing infrastructure improvements. East Ohio Gas started these years ago. They really are investing in replacing the old gas lines. They've gone through a lot of old neighborhoods and replaced gas meters. I mean, the natural gas isn't like electricity. If something goes wrong, things blow up. So you want to have good maintenance and a 
good record. And it sounds like from Sean's research, this is a company that believes in that. Yes. Like I said, that was one of their main reasons that Dominion or East Ohio Gas was so attractive to them. And they're committed to ongoing upgrades after the sale goes through. They're actually upgrading the gas lines just a couple of blocks from me. Yeah, I've I've was I've been heartened to see it. I mean, it's the complete opposite of First Energy, which has invested nothing in infrastructure really, and we see the results of that. The the gas has been pretty solid, so it's it's not terrible news. You always worry when when a new newcomer comes in, but this is one with a long record in Canada. The Canadians are taking us over, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to today in Ohio. The downfall of former Cleveland Municipal Court Judge Pinky Carr is complete. What is her sentence for filing false documents and unfairly sticking it to people in her courtroom? Laura. So Carr, who's 57, she reached an agreement with prosecutors before a hearing to plead no contest to these three first-degree misdemeanor falsification charges, and she's sentenced to four months of probation. So this was an agreement. She didn't get any jail time. And she ended, I mean, she ended her career as a judge, cost her her law license. And that's what the judge said. It's the Willoughby Municipal Court Judge Larry Allen. He presided over the case, retired. He said, anything I would do would pale in comparison to the losses that you've already suffered. Carr's attorney told the judge that she didn't gain anything from her conduct, that she was just trying to move her docket along. He said she'll be the first to admit that she exceeded her authority. But... Um, she didn't get the jail time that the assistant Ohio attorney general drew Wood asked to impose. That was $180, sorry, a suspended 180 day jail sentence. Yeah. He didn't ask for jail time. He asked no, for a for suspended, suspended sentence in case she did something else stupid, then she would go to jail. I was a little surprised given the abuses that the judge didn't impose that. It seemed like she got a pass because she's a former judge. You or I would have walked out of there with a suspended jail sentence, I suspect. Look, she caused a lot of harm. She was mm -hmm. she was citing people for failing to appear, citing them during for COVID. Yeah. When the courthouse had been closed because of COVID. People have been told don't come. It's a health hazard. And then she was issuing citations to round them up. It was and then completely she lied about wrong. It. Right. She lied to us. I mean, it was what she did was a serious abuse of power. And judges have a lot of power when they abuse their power. It's as bad as it gets. I think she got a sweetheart deal here uh, and should have probably been hit a little bit harder. You or I would have been. I, I don't think we'll ever be a judge, Chris. <laughs> to, well, we're pretty judgy here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Another Northeast Ohio lawyer already serving a prison term for his crimes got some more bad news Wednesday. What was it, Courtney? Yeah, the Ohio Supreme Court on Wednesday, they, they took action against this independence attorney, Sean Romer, after he was convicted for soliciting a child and buying drugs from a coned cane dealer who's also a human trafficker. And, you know... Romer was convicted. He he served his time. He was sentenced to three years in prison. He ended up getting judicial release a few months ago. But now we're seeing the the punishment on, on the law license end of things. The Ohio Supreme Court Ohio Supreme Court indefinitely suspended Romer's law license yesterday, and he had been under an interim suspension since he pleaded guilty back early last year. But this makes it official. I should disclose that he is suing us for defamation, which is kind of astounding because he tried to pick up a 15-year-old for sex. How can you damage the reputation of somebody who's done that? It's one of those cases that you just shake your head at. What is he thinking? 
Uh, so we'll have to see how that goes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One more judge to talk about. A salacious lawsuit was filed against the administrative judge of Cuyahoga County's Domestic Relations Court. We're not going to get into the sordid details, which I'm surprised are in the lawsuit. But Lisa, what is the overall allegation here? The overall allegation is retaliation. Cuyahoga County Domestic Relations Judge Leslie Ann Celebreeze was named in a lawsuit filed by her former assistant, Georgiana Samari. She accuses the judge of demoting her and cutting her pay by $20,000. Now, this focuses on Samari allowing a reporter with the Marshall Project Cleveland to review court files of Celebreeze's appointment of Mark DeTore as a receiver in a contentious divorce case. Samari's attorney is attorney Sabode Chandra. We know that he's quite flamboyant. He alleges in the suit that Celebrezzi and Dottori were having an affair and the judge confided in about the affair in to Samari. Also, apparently, the suit says the FBI Public Corruption Unit asked Samari about Celebrezzi. A public a, a private investigator followed and recorded the judge for several days, and that included a video of her and Dottori kissing outside of a restaurant. So Celebrezzi took over a divorce case. She assigned it to herself after the original judge, Tonya Jones, recused herself. After taking on the case, Celebreeze then approved $300,000 in fees requested by DeTori, who was, uh, you know, a, a guardian or whatever in the case. So Samari reviewed files for confidential info before she showed it to the reporter, but she texted the reporter's business card to the judge and said she didn't, you know, the person didn't ID themselves as a reporter until afterward. She was demoted. The employee handbook requires employees to notify court admins of news media requests, but the suit claims that that's rarely enforced. Yeah, I was surprised at the level of salacious detail that attorney Sabode Chandra put into this lawsuit because it really wasn't necessary to make his case. It almost seems like it was piling on. It'll be interesting to see how this case proceeds through the courts. I don't think judges and appellate judges look kindly upon that kind of thing. Uh, but we'll have to see if Cel- what Celebreeze has to say in her response. Yeah, it's interesting, though, that she did assign the case to herself. So that kind of is a little squishy. Yeah, she got and she got slapped for that. I mean, the, the, yes. without judging, without issuing anything about bias, they said that they violated it. We had talked about that. But this is this is taking it in a whole new area. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With all the suffering in Maui following the devastating fire, travelers are wondering, is it okay to go there for a vacation or is that in bad taste? Laura, what does travel editor Susan Glazer say? But basically, you need to look to the community to itself to see what they are hoping from travelers. And you need to look at the specific geography of where you are intended to travel. But for as far as Hawaii, yes, you can go back because immediately after the devastating fires, the government officials were basically telling people to stay away. But Hawaiian Tourism Authority has shifted its messaging. It's encouraging respectful, responsible tourism to Maui. They put out a map that shows the compact area of West Maui that's closed, as well as the neighboring communities where hotels and other lodging are taken up by displaced residents and workers. So you just obviously should stay away from there. But the tour drop in tourism is costing the entire state $9 million per day. I mean, that is 
the lifeblood of Hawaii at this point. It's tourism. So you really just need to pay attention to where you're going and what the locals want from you. And I think this can happen anywhere, right? It happens anytime there's a natural disaster. Also, we, we all as tourists should probably be a little more cognizant of the locals where we go anywhere, anything, anytime. And that's what the experts say, you know, hire a local guide, go to local restaurants. Don't necessarily just go to a chain in a different state than you live in. I, you know, I went to Hawaii a long, long time ago and stayed not just a few miles from Lahaina. And I, I got I, I would feel kind of guilty going back there for vacation now, knowing that they're still searching for all sorts of missing people in that fire. Wouldn't don't you think it would? You don't want to kick back with a mai tai and like yeah, relax just, in the sun while like I, devastation is happening. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other islands maybe it's different, but I don't know that I'd want to be there. I think it would be hard to to have that vacation feel on the other hand like you said they're losing millions of dollars because nobody is going there right you don't want to punish them in other parts of the state because of this disaster you don't want to make it worse But I I wonder, though, about disaster tourism, because I remember after Katrina, they were taking bus rides through the Lower Ninth Ward to show people, you know, the devastation of Katrina there. I just wonder if some enterprising guide is going to do the same thing for Lahaina. Yeah, I I mean, I I guess if you could argue that the profits are all going to help the survivors or something, it would... Makes sense. The whole thing. It's a great uh, discussion. Susan's piece kind of lays it out. It's its an interesting yeah, quandary. And I think that regardless of what the situation is, we should, you know, you should learn about the native culture. You shouldn't be just going to a beach, right? Exactly. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Courtney, why is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb donning an apron at Fat Cats in Cleveland's Tremont neighborhood? Oh man, this will be a sight to see, right? Bib is uh, jumping into this event to announce a grant program from High Road Kitchens. It's being funded by the George Gunn Foundation, and Bib's kind of getting in there in that in this initial rollout to kind of talk and announce and and advertise this grant program. He'll be he'll be hitting up Fat Cats in Tremont, great restaurant, and. Um, Basically, this program is in partnership with One Fair Wage and High Road Restaurants. And the grant program here is designed to help out small businesses facing post-pandemic staffing shortages, which we know are still ongoing. But it's also meant to really encourage better wages and, and fair labor practices and those kinds of things. Ten $5,000 grants will be given to small business restaurants to help them boost the wages of their staff, encourage, like I said, those fair labor practices and recruit more workers. And the restaurants that do participate, they'll have to make some promises here. They have to commit to paying all staff $15 per hour plus tips. We know in Ohio, the server minimum wage is, is about $5. So that's a big boost there. And, and and they'll also have to promise to implement equitable employment practices. I think this is evidence of how much things have changed in Cleveland. I was a fan of Frank Jackson's stewardship of the city and the budget and a lot of things he did. But I just don't see him putting on an apron to push this kind of a project. Justin Bibb is is doing things differently. Definitely. He, he's he got his policy angle, but we see him doing these kinds of events, not necessarily directly tied to city business, but just kind of rah-rah Cleveland, let's get our community moving he, that's been his style for sure. 
He has a lot of energy. He seems to be everywhere. I mean, it's he's clearly working this job the way he promised he would, which is around the clock. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We're short for a Thursday. That's a good thing. Take a few minutes back. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week.